careful about clapping too soon. You don't know what I'm going to say. Well, it is certainly um, an honor, a uh, pleasure to be here with you all. I think it was, it seems like it was cold outside the last time that I was here. So that could be any time between, well, eight months of the year uh, here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, as uh, as Nathan said, uh, I am an elder at uh, Grace Covenant Church, one of your sister churches, and um, bring you greetings from uh, the folks there. Uh, we are... Um, uh, so encouraged by the work that is going on here at Covenant Life, and uh, I am uh, personally as well. It's been a real joy to get to know your pastor um, and spend some time with him and his family. So um, as, we, as we turn to God's word, um, I am going to uh, pray for us first. Um, but if you'd like to, you can turn to Psalm 5. Uh, so if you have if you have your Bible, I would go kind of right down in the middle. Uh, you're going to run into the Psalms. And Psalm 5, uh, as you would expect, is sort of towards the beginning of the book of Psalms. It's the fifth chapter in the book of Psalms. And uh, I think that this is a psalm about home. I think that the big theme in Psalm 5 is home and and coming home, homecoming. Now, I don't know what sort of uh, images and memories and emotions the word home conjures to your imagination. Uh, I hope it's good things. I hope that you like going home. Uh, do you remember the first time that you went home after college? The way that things changed? But nevertheless, the sense that, oh, I'm home, finally. Home is a big word for us. I think it captures the imagination. Think about all the phrases that are used to talk about home. Home sweet home, home away from home. Uh, what did Dorothy say? There's no place like home. Uh, when we're away from home, we get homesick. This is baseball season, so we can use a baseball analogy if permitted. Home base, home plate. What is that? It's the place where you're safe, where no one can hurt you anymore because you're home. Well, as I said, I think that Psalm 5 is about coming home. And I mean that here in the truest and biggest sense of the word home. So let's pray for God's blessing and then read this word from the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, great God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have not been silent, but instead that you have spoken to us in and through your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us not just what you require of us, not just who you are, but also how it is that we can come home and be near Lord, we pray that as we look at and read and reflect on this psalm, that you would be here with us, that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready to receive what you are saying. 
God, give us grace in that, I pray. In the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Psalm 5. This is a psalm of David uh, written to the choir master for the flutes. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, the psalmist says, verse 7, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house, and I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their own guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with a favor as with a shield. You cover him with favor as with a shield. As I said a minute ago, uh, Psalm 5 is quite early on in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter. And I think that that is significant, or at least it's not insignificant. Uh, I, I think that a lot of Christians approach the book of Psalms as if it were just a kind of a, I don't know, a random grab bag, like a collection of, of poems and songs about God that somebody put into a bag and they shook them up and then they pulled them out and they put them one to 150. I don't think that's right. The more that I have gotten to know the book of Psalms, the more I have become convinced that this is not a haphazard book but instead, it's a book that is very carefully organized. Got too many pockets and too many things in pockets trying to manage. Very carefully organized. So this is the fifth psalm. If this is a very carefully organized book, what does that mean? Well, it means it's the beginning of the book and that that matters. It is not too far from the first two psalms. And most readers of the Psalter after you've gotten to know the Psalms quite well, people begin to see the first two Psalms as a kind of an entryway. Right? If this was a path, this would be the gate 
that lead you into it. If it was a house, it would be the two twin doorposts, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And as you, as you come to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, what do you learn? What does this introduction to the Psalter teach us? Well, Psalm 1 introduces us to the blessed man, the blessed man, the one who receives abundance and fruitfulness, happiness. A good word to translate blessed with is happiness. He's the happy man. Psalm 1 also introduces us to what I think of as the two ways in the Psalms. Right? There, there is the way of the blessed man, that way of joy, abundance, and fruitfulness. And then there's this other way, which is the way of death and destruction. And Psalm 1 says there's two ways and exactly two ways. And then we read Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 introduces us to the anointed son. So we get the blessed man, the happy man, and now we get the anointed son. The anointed son in Psalm 2 is the one to whom God, his father, has given all authority and power and victory over their enemies. That anointed son, of course, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And it turns out that that anointed son is also the happy man. He's the one who walks in the way of the Lord. And although there is threat in Psalm 2 for all who choose to walk in the path of destruction, there's also a tremendous hope that is, that is offered to all who will take refuge in the blessed man, in the anointed son. If you take refuge in the anointed son, you receive all the blessings of the blessed man. Now that's a lot. I have just given you a huge amount of information. But I want you to, to at least be sort of in the same milieu. I want you to be thinking about the same ideas because Psalm 1 and 2 are the foreshadow of the rest of the Psalter. If you get Psalm 1 and 2, you kind of have the rest of it as well. Psalm 1 and 2 introduce the themes, the characters, the plot devices, even the resolution of the tension that builds and then reaches a climax and ultimately comes to resolution throughout the rest of the Psalter. So Psalm 1 and 2, they're pretty good psalms. But then a funny thing happens when you turn the page and you go to Psalm 3. All of a sudden, things get really, really dark. And in fact, from Psalm 3 until at least Psalm 8, what you get are laments, sad songs. You know, when I was in high school, the kids who wore black, they listened to like, like Morrissey, Depeche Mode, uh, but you guys are all way too young for this, so I don't know what the equivalent is. I'm sure that there is one today, uh, but whatever it is, they listen to the sad songs. And even Psalm 8, feels like a blink. One praise song. And then it starts again with another set of sad songs. And so when we come to Psalm 5 and we find the psalmist groaning and crying out to God, we're not surprised. We aren't surprised that this is happening. But we do want to ask the question, why? What's going on? What's the problem? 
that has got our psalmist so upset? Why is he singing the sad song in Psalm 5 instead of the happy song? Isn't this that same blessed man, that same anointed son that we met in Psalm 1 and 2? What's happened to him? Why is he so sad now? Well, you know, Hebrew poetry is, uh, is tricky, uh, and it works differently than English poetry does. English poetry likes rhyme and meter. Um, Hebrew poetry, not so much. Good thing that they don't rely on rhyme, because then it wouldn't translate very well. What they rely on instead is structure. And so I think that if we want to know what's going on with this psalmist, the best way for us to proceed is actually to think about what the structure of Psalm 5 is, and I'm going I'm to tell you right now, it's super easy, okay? Psalm 5 has five parts. Psalm 5 has five parts, right? It's an easy way to remember. And these five parts go back and forth between focusing on the psalmist and his relationship with God, and then the psalmist's enemies and their relationship with God. So it starts with the psalmist, and it ends with the psalmist and his relationship with God, and it goes back and forth. So what I'd like to do, I want to take us through those five different sections, think about what's going on there, and how the psalmist, David in this case, is developing his plea, his groan to God, and why he is crying out to him, and why he has confidence that maybe, just maybe, God will actually do something about his problems. So let's take a look first at verses one through three. Here, what we find is the psalmist um, suffering, right? He cries out to the Lord for help, but he does so with anticipation. Look down in verse 3. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch, right? He's, he's, he's looking towards something. He's got forward-looking vision. He's preparing. He's watching. Notice as well that in this first section, this is, this is an intimate section, an intimate relationship between God and the psalmist. And I think we can see that most clearly by looking at the pronouns. Look for all the I's and the you's, right? This is the psalmist praying to his God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king, my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. Watch, do you hear all those eyes and yous? This is an intimate relationship between the psalmist and his God. The singer expects the Lord to care about what's happening to him. Why? Why should the Lord care about what's happening to this guy? Because they are bound together. There is a connection, a bond, between the psalmist and his God. We can see it when the psalmist calls God his God. My king, my God. Not just some random king walking down the street, right? Not just some God that he happened to see. No. My king, my God, we're bound together, we're connected together. Second section, verses four to six. 
Now the psalmist turns the focus away from himself and turns it instead to his enemies. He reminds God of who God is and he reminds him of what he hates. What does God hate? God hates evil. He hates evil. And he hates those who practice it. I want you to see the contrast here of the intimacy of verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3 are characterized by this idea of my king and my God, we are bound together. But, But here, it is not so, right? Now he's saying, these types of people, they may not dwell in your presence, right? My king and my God, but they may not dwell in your presence. There's separation there. There's separation between those people and the psalmist. Why? What are they doing? Apparently terrible things. A combination of bloodthirstiness, deceit, and destruction. That's a nasty combination. But that seems to characterize these people. The third section. Verses 7 and 8. This is the heart of the psalm. Hebrew poetry often works this way. Instead of drawing our attention to the end of the reading, it draws our attention to the center of the reading. And that's what happens here. Verses 7 and 8 are the heart of this psalm. Once again, the focus is back on the psalmist. This is the one in whom God delights. And he really does follow the Lord. He really does trust in the Lord. This is, this is, this is a psalmist um, who is worthy of our admiration. We look at him and we say, wow, this is, this is truly someone who trusts and obeys the Lord, who tries to walk in his ways. And he's doing so in spite of all of his enemies. He has confidence that the Lord will hear him and will do something about it. We can see that confidence. He will enter the house of the Lord, won't he? He will do that, right? There is a place for him there. He's confident about that. There's no question in his heart about whether or not he will be able to enter the house of the Lord. And in anticipation of that, he even turns his worshipful heart toward God's temple and he walks in the righteous ways of the Lord. The fourth section, verses 9 and 10. Once again, uh, the psalmist points us back towards the bad guys, towards his enemies. What are they doing here? They're liars, right? They're flatterers. Uh, They're false counselors. He says their throats are like death. What are these people doing? What are they saying? Their their identity, their inmost self, their identity is destruction. Where the psalmist has turned his worshipful heart towards God's house, these are turning their hearts not towards worship of God, but towards destruction. That's what they are pursuing. That's what they are aiming their hearts toward. In their rebellion, they have actually rejected God. They said, we do not want to be with you. We do not want to walk in that way. We choose this other path, this path of death and destruction 
instead. Note the, the contrast here. In verse 7, the psalmist says, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. But now, it's through the abundance of their transgressions that God is going to cast them out of his presence. Abundance. But what different kinds of abundance these are. The one leading to fruitfulness and life. The other leads to death and destruction. Well, we finally get then to the last section, section five. And here, I just, I want to draw out two elements, two, I think two new elements. They may not surprise us altogether, but, but they're important to notice. One thing is that for the first time, this whole psalm has been a first-person psalm, right? The psalmist talking to God. But now, for the first time, it turns out that we hear that there is not just one person that the psalmist is concerned about himself. He's concerned about a whole group of people, right? A group of people who love the name of the Lord. Verse 11. And there's a second thing that we learn. There's a second thing, and it's this. In this last section, the psalmist begins to look beyond his salvation. He's looking beyond what the Lord will do for him. And he's beginning to think about what he's going to do after that happens. What do you think he's going to do after his salvation? party, right? He's, he's going to rejoice. He's going to exult. He's going to give thanks to the Lord for what the Lord has done. So he is looking beyond the moment of salvation and he's thinking about what will happen next. And then in verse 12, uh, the, the psalm resolves with confidence, right? Notice that this is, for, for the grammar nerds among us, right? This is, this is indicative. This is present indicative mood. He is not talking about something that might or could happen. He's talking about something that is the case. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You do this. This is who you are. This isn't a wish. This isn't a hope. It's not even a prayerful petition. This is simply telling the truth about the way things are. All right, so there's, there's the structure of our psalm. I think we've gotten a good deal of the content out of it. There's always more that we could pull up, but I think we've done quite well. Let's come back to our question. Why is the psalmist so upset? What is he groaning about? What is he crying over? As I see it, there are basically two problems that the psalmist faces. Now, one of them is obvious, and one of them is a little bit further down below the surface. Right? The obvious one is his enemies. He's got the problem of his enemies. And as I said, these are a nasty group of people, a combination of deceitfulness and, and bloodthirsty destroyers. They want to kill him, but they, they, don't, they don't have the courage to just come up and do it. 
Instead, what they do is they use words to twist and deceive, to connive, in order to lead to his destruction. Sort of like the, the snake in the garden, right? Who, 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 who twists God's words in such a way that Eve and Adam hear them and they say, oh yeah, that sounds wise. Or if you're, if you're a Lord of the Ring fan, um, think, of, think of the character Wormtongue or maybe Sauron uh, in the book, right? They, they, are, they are characters who know how to use words in such a way to twist them so that they can get what they want. They seem like they're wise. They seem like they're helpful. They seem like they're good counselors. They seem like they are pursuing the greater good. But in fact, their heart is set in destruction. In that they are like the devil. Jesus calls the devil a murderer from the beginning. It's at the core of who he is. Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. He is the one from whom lies flow. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. That is their identity at the deepest core. Hope you don't know anybody like this. I, I, I genuinely do. Uh, my mother told me, I, I can vividly recall this, I was probably six years old. Uh, she said, Patrick, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Um, I have learned that my mother was wrong about that. Uh, words hurt. They truly do. This is part of why we have uh, in, in, uh, in our, our uh, legal code, uh, we, have, we have laws against both libel and slander, right? Because words are powerful. Words actually do hurt people. You can kill people with words. And sure enough, in the Bible, we see the same sort of idea. James warns us to keep a close rein on our words. So covenant life, uh, watch your words. Right? Watch your words. Watch how you speak to one another and about one another. Watch how you speak about one another, especially to those who are outside. They will see the way that you behave towards one another. And if you present a witness that reflects the love that you have towards your brothers and sisters, this will go a long way towards demonstrating to those who are outside that people who are in the church really are different sorts of people. Guard your tongues, covenant life. I said there are two, uh, two problems. First is the enemies, that's obvious. Uh, the second problem, though, I think is a little bit deeper, it's a little below the surface, and I'm going to call this the problem of exile. Problem of exile. And it goes something like this. Despite his loyalty, despite his, his obedience, despite his faithfulness, this psalmist really is obedient, hopeful, faithful, loving, right? He is doing the sorts of things that God calls him to do. Despite all of this, he is nevertheless somehow far away from God. He's removed from God. God is not with him. Right? He, is, he is absent in some sense. This is why he's calling out to God. I think we can actually see this idea throughout the entire psalm, but, but, but I pick it up most strongly in verses 7 and 8. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me 
Lead me in your righteousness, O Lord, because of my enemies. Make your way straight for me. Do you see the way that these are future-looking things? Right? If he has the Lord with him now, if he is in the presence of the Lord, he doesn't need to talk about what will happen in the future as though it doesn't happen now. But because he doesn't have this now, in some sense, he has to look toward the future in hope. Psalmist looks toward the future because he's not where he wants to be. I'll use my second baseball analogy. It's really the same one as the first, so it just counts as one. This guy is running the base paths, right? He is somewhere between first and third base at this point. He is not yet safe at home. He's out there in the danger zone where people can get him out. And as a result of that, he is calling out to the Lord. Well, where does he want to be? Where is where is home base in this case? Verse 7 gives us that answer. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. He wants to be in the house of the Lord. When you think of home, you may think of all kinds of places. Maybe the, the home that you grew up in. Maybe you think of your dorm room when you were in college. Maybe you Maybe you think about the place that you live now. Maybe you think about some, some other place that, that was safe and secure that you enjoyed going to. Whatever it is that we think about when we think of home, let me tell you what the Bible means when it talks about our home. For the Bible, home is most clearly depicted as the place where God is. The place where God is. The presence of God, his house, his holy temple. That's what it ultimately means for human beings to be home. That, that is where each and every one of us, whether, whether we're ready to acknowledge this or not, each and every one of us longs to be in the presence of the one who made us. We long to be accepted into his presence. We long to be welcomed into his presence. There's a, um, in the fourth century, a uh, uh, man named Augustine, a great theologian of the African church. Uh, Augustine, um, in a prayer to God, he prayed this. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, Lord. Some people have talked about this as, as having a God-shaped hole in your heart, right? And we put everything else in there, anything that we can fit in that hole to try and fill up the cavity. But at the end of the day, nothing fits. Nothing can fill that space except God himself. Now, I told you that the psalmist has two problems, and I stand by that. But I think that there is a third problem that is in this psalm. And the third problem is not the psalmist's problem, it's our problem. And the problem goes like this. I'm going to use Augustine's language. Who gets to rest in God? Who gets to rest in God? This is actually a big question in the Psalter, especially this, this zone of the Psalter. Who gets to come into God's holy house? Who gets to enter into his temple? Uh, if, if you were to go and read Psalms 15 or Psalm 24, you would see the question right there in front of you. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? 
Who can dwell on his holy hill? It's worth pondering, right? It's worth reflecting on this in a very serious way. Who gets to rest in the house of the Lord? David? David wrote this psalm. Does David get to rest in the house of the Lord? Well, David's a remarkable man. He was a great king. He was a great leader, great warrior. David was not a perfect man. David was disobedient. David was an adulterer. In fact, David was the sort of adulterer who when, (laughs) when he got Bathsheba pregnant, he decided that the way he was going to handle this was not through repentance, but instead by covering it up. How did he cover it up? Through deceit and murder. Bloodthirsty deceit. David actually sounds a lot more like the bad guys in Psalm 5 than he does like the psalmist, when you think about it that way. What about us? Are we the sort of people who get to ascend the hill of the Lord, march in and say, I'm home. Have you set a place for me at the dinner table? There's a Robert Frost poem. Uh, He wrote it about a little more than 100 years ago. It's called The Death of a Hired Man. Um, I read this first in high school. It's, it's a haunting poem. Uh, you might go back and, and read it if you never have or if you uh, maybe vaguely recall it. Um, in this poem, which is a long narrative poem, the, I'll, I'll resist telling you the whole plot, okay? I'll just, I'll just give you the, the punchline. The, there's a famous line in this poem, and it goes this way. Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to let you in. Home's the place where when you have to go there, they have to let you in. If you go to God's house, why does God have to let you in? Why should God let you in? Why should God let David in to his house? Psalm 5 uh, is not frequently quoted elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, the only citation that I'm aware of in the New Testament is in the book of Romans, in chapter 3, the book of Romans. And if you know the book of Romans, chapter 3 is the part of the book where the Apostle Paul is making a really strong argument that every single person is dead in sin. Right? Everybody, not just the Gentiles, not just the bad Gentiles, but the Jews too, the covenant people of God, Everyone alike is under sin. And he strings together citations from all across the Old Testament. I'm going to read what he writes. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he quotes Psalm 5, verse 9. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. That's true. Why should God let you into his house? Our psalm gives an answer. Thankfully, because I wouldn't want to leave it there. Verse 7. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. That's how the psalmist gets in. Through the abundance of God's steadfast love, he will enter 
God's house. Uh, that word that is translated in English Standard Version, um, steadfast love, is, uh, is the only Hebrew word I'm going to give you. I'm not going to do any more. Right? It's the word hesed. Hesed. And hesed is a really difficult word to translate because it's such a big word in the Old Testament. It's used about 250 times. About half of those show up in the Psalms. This is the first time that it gets used in the Psalms. What is chesed? Well, steadfast love, or sometimes it gets translated loving kindness, or loving mercy, or covenant love, or, or loyal love, or faithfulness, or loyalty, right? There, there are all of these different ways that we try to capture the idea of what chesed is saying. But the big idea for Psalm 5 is this. God's love remains fixed on the psalmist. That's the idea. God's love remains fixed on the psalmist no matter what. God says, this one is mine. Just as the psalmist says, my God and my king. God says, this one is mine. No matter what, I have bound myself to him. My love abides upon him no matter what. But notice, virtually all of the language in Psalm 5 is singular. It refers, including verse 7, by the way, it, it refers to the righteous one, to the righteous person. The one whom God hears when he cries, that's verse 2. The one who enters the house of the Lord, verse 7. The one who walks in the way of righteousness, verse 8. The righteous one whom the Lord blesses and covers with favor. That's verse 12. So who is this blessed one? Well, it's not David. It's not you, and it's not me. Blessed man is the anointed son, our Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved son. Do you remember what the father said to the son when the son came up out of the Jordan River after having been baptized by John? voice from heaven proclaimed, this is my beloved son. Do you hear the words of the father laying claim, putting his abundant steadfast love upon the son? This is who Psalm 5 points us to. Friends, what emerges in Psalm 5 are those two same options that we see in verse 1. There's the option of facing the judgment of God on our own. In which case, Psalm 5 says that if we have to bear our own guilt, verse 10, then the abundance of our sins will mean that there is no home for us in God. That's door number one. But there's a second door, and our second door is in verse 11. For all who take refuge in the Lord, there is hope. If you take refuge in the Lord, then, then you get to rejoice. You get to sing for joy. You get to exult in the Lord as he spreads his protection over us. The same protection that is spread over the one who is blessed. The one who receives the favor of God as if it were a shield. What does that mean? How do we take refuge in the Lord? It's simply this. 
take refuge in the Son. Repent. Turn away from whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever it is that you're trying to fill that hole in your heart with, whatever it is that you are holding on to, let go of it. That's what it means to repent and turn and lay your hands on Christ instead. Put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. That's what it means to take refuge in the Son. That's what it means to take refuge in the Lord. Don't miss this. Set your feet on the path that leads to life, leads to blessing, rather than the path that leads to death and destruction. And what about when you find the path that leads to life? What about when you set your feet upon it and you start walking in the way of the Lord? What then? How does this psalm teach us to respond? We who have taken refuge in the Son. Well, the answer, I think, is obvious. You do what the psalmist does. Look at verse 3. Oh Lord, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. What's he watching for? He's watching for his salvation. He's watching for the Lord. He's waiting for the Lord to come and save him, to rescue him from his enemies, to end his exile. What's his sacrifice? This isn't, a, this isn't an atonement sacrifice. This isn't a guilt sacrifice. This is a thanksgiving offering. Psalmist responds to his salvation with thanksgiving, with a party. Brothers and sisters, if you have found salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus, then your proper response is joy and exaltation. It is joy and exaltation expressed in costly sacrifice. Now, this is going to, I'm not going to be specific about what that means because this is going to look very different for each one of you. The way in which you respond to God's salvation in your life with costly sacrifice, with costly thanksgiving, that's going to look different for each and every one of you. But I want you to ask yourself, what would a proper response be? What would be a proper response in your life knowing that God has welcomed you into his home, that he, has, that he has set a seat for you at his table, that he has invited you into his party, knowing that that cost him his own son, the humiliation and the death of his own son. What does that, what does that mean for you? How do you respond with thanksgiving in the light of that? This week, um, I encourage you, I urge you to, to turn your hearts towards God in thankfulness. Turn your hearts towards God in thankfulness. And offer, Paul says, offer your lives as a living and holy sacrifice to the Lord by walking in the ways of your King. Heavenly Father, you who have given all things for our sake by giving your Son, I pray that you would give us hearts of thanksgiving that are eager to respond with joy and with exultation. 
as we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to you in utter astonishment at the ways in which you have loved us and poured out upon us the abundance of your steadfast love. We give you great praise and thanks in your Son. Amen.